Good morning, good morning. Well, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, my name is Ryan James, one of the elders here, and it is uh, my privilege to get to um, share with you um, uh, today in our, uh, in our sermon series we're starting off about core values. And so I wanted to start off just by asking you a question, since I'm really um, at, the, at the core of it, always just a small group leader, you know. And so I wanted to ask and, and imagine a time actually that you know, someone comes up here, grabs me, uh, grabs a Bible, hands it to me and says, you know what, this ought to be the authority in your life. And, and so when I'm asking myself, I said, you know, what would I do? What would I, what would I do if that was the case, had not, not been, you know, open to that before? And what should I do? What would I do? What are some of the things that would be compelling in that situation? And, and so as I think about it, I think, well, I might look at it. I might see if there's a summary in here. I might, I might begin to read through and recognize, well, there's, there's maybe two different parts. There's a you know, first half and a second half maybe. And, you know, oh, well, maybe there's some different time frames discussed. And the reality is for me, for a lot of years of my life, I really took this at face value that the Bible was my authority. I, I just believed it because I was... I was told it, and by the grace of God, I, I believed it, which, which is, it worked out actually quite, quite well, but it's not the case for everybody. So I am curious, um, by a show of hands, how many people, you know, have this experience like mine that early on, the Bible was something that really, you, you grasped onto it, and you believed it, okay? And then by another show of hands, how many needed to like go and just be convinced by every stretch of the imagination that you can imagine. All right, so we got multiple of those too. And so can I ask of, of well, really either group, but the second group maybe especially, what were some of the, the evidence, what were some of the pieces of information that was compelling and, and maybe, you know, nudged you in the, in the direction of, of accepting the Word of God as, as authoritative. Anybody willing to share an idea? Yeah, one is good. All right, so he's talking about what was convincing to him was the, the reliability of passing the Scripture through time, probably compared to other in manuscripts, which we'll talk a little bit about this morning as well. Any other or, She was seeing the testimony of God working in her life as she continued to believe what was in God's word. Is that fair to say? Watching and, and, and experiencing God's movement in her life. Anybody else? Trevor? It was all or nothing for Trevor. That if there were any questions, that was not going to work. And so you received it and you believed it. One more. Any others? Seeing how from Genesis to Revelation, it all came together. Seeing the thread of a single story from the start of the Bible in Genesis to the end in Revelation, how it worked together of this great redemptive story is what convinced and was compelling for Greg. And so, you know, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that 
uh, today because as we, as we get started off, that the aspect of our core values at New Life, which we have six of them that when we put them together, they kind of give us a DNA fingerprint of who our church is. And this topic of today of biblical authority is so critical to that, of what we put our hope in, what we put our trust in. And so um, as we do that today, we're going to be focusing in on the book of, of 2 Timothy, actually, which will provide an undergirding, and a, kind of a launching pad into looking at this idea of, of biblical authority in our lives. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to that book of 2 Timothy, and that will give us, um, a, give us a spot where you can keep your finger in and, uh, and be there with me. Um, so as we, as we delve into this, actually the chapter number two, we're going to focus in on chapter number three, but chapter number two, and, and in some cases the whole book of 2 Timothy, we kind of got a window into a coaching session a first century coaching session where you've got a senior leader in Paul and you kind of have a junior leader, a junior minister in Timothy. And Paul is coming near the end of his ministry, end of his life, and he is imploring onto this young man and giving and pouring into him some of the truth, some of the realities of ministry. And as he does that, there are some not-so-easy things to share. And so in chapter 2, uh, Paul is encouraging him. Paul is telling him that no matter what goes on around you, no matter what your temptations are, make sure that you flee from temptation. You flee from sin. And then actually, he rolls right into chapter 3, which you know, in, in the original manuscripts, there were no chapters, and so this was just a letter. And so he rolls right into chapter 3, and he starts off that in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 1 through 9, they're going to be on the screen. But if you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to look at it. We're actually not going to read all of those. But what Paul begins to share with Timothy is that as the end of days come near, there is going to be some difficult times. There is going to be difficulty. And he rolls into this whole list, in, starting in verse 2, and it really extends into verse 5, the crux of it. And it starts with, which is oftentimes in Scripture the emphasis of a passage, it starts with, in that verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. And so if you could just describe a general theme of the next two or three lines there, that lovers of self really epitomize it. Because you'll see just a list of sins that we can expect to see. And if you read that list, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we're entering into that today. Maybe we're already even there with a theme of lovers of self. And then it ends that list with this idea that these folks who are working through these sins may have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. So Paul is sharing with Timothy that all these terrible things have been going on around us. And you know what? Sometimes it might be hard to tell who is on our side and who is on the other side because so many people are struggling 
with sin. And so there's, there's a whole sermon probably or two to unpack in that first nine verses, but we're going we're gonna to just remember, keep in mind that list of sins that Paul is opening up the door to Timothy. And we're going to move into the chat, verse 10 and on into verse 15 as we, as we narrow the funnel towards this idea of biblical authority in our lives. So go ahead and flip down to chapter 3, verse 10, and we're going to start reading there. You, however, have followed my teachings. Of course, we've just gone through this list of sin and all this stuff that's going to happen in the end times, um, and, but we're still there talking with Timothy. Paul says, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teachings, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, so here we have Paul, this older guy with Timothy, this younger guy, and saying, all this stuff is on the way. Get ready for this to happen in your life, in the people around you, in your ministry. But he says, but you have been with me. You've learned from me. You've watched me. And it doesn't say it right there, but I can just hear it between the lines. Paul saying, and you're still here and you stuck with me. <laughs> I can just imagine that as a, as a pastor, as a leader, that he's so appreciative of all that w- went along with, with Paul's ministry that Timothy just cared for him enough and cared for the word of God and cared for the ministry enough to stick through it even after watching Paul just have difficulty after difficulty, persecution after persecution, and with him telling him that the days ahead aren't going to be any picnic. But Timothy was there, and you can't help but see the pride of excitement in Paul's words, even as he fades away into, um, into the end part of his life, but he's confident in Timothy. And he's confident because of, of what is said there in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He knows, and it is their reference back in the first part of 2 Timothy, that Timothy has a heritage of faith. Remember that the gals by the name of, of Lois and Eunice? No, not the ones that go to your home church from 30 years ago, because I know we've got... I can think of four off the top of my head, um, and it wasn't a big church. Um, but Lois and Eunice are, are Timothy's grandmother and mother. 
And, and Paul points them out and, and is appreciative of their ministry and their influence on Timothy early on in that letter. And so he has the confidence that the, the sacred scriptures have been studied and reviewed by Timothy, but not only that, but they've been ingrained in him by his grandma and his mom. And how cool of a legacy that is. And then, so in addition to that, he knows it's been a long time. It is not something that will be fleeting in his life, and it is firmly based in those sacred writings, the scriptures. And those scriptures are so important because the next phrase there is that it is able to make you, make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the crux of this entire idea this morning of the authority of the Bible in our lives is the centered aspect of the gospel, of that the sacred writings of Scripture point us to Jesus. So anything else that we talk about is a little bit on the, on the side. The gospel is the center of the gospel from the table of contents to the maps, the gospel, the focus on Jesus is the center of Scripture. So shifting to uh, chapter 3, verse 16, we get to the crux of the matter. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this, this passage is so incredible for all of us to lash onto. But of course, don't forget, it comes in the context of this conversation, this training conversation of Paul and Timothy, but he kind of comes to this climax of the end that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so the first question as we look at this passage in particular, what does that word Scripture refer to? It comes from the Greek word scripto. No, it actually doesn't. I was, wouldn't it be easy if it did, though? <laughs> the Greek word is actually graphe, which doesn't sound anything like the word, and it's hard to remember. So anyway, um, but the idea behind it is, is that it's, it's written so that it can be it can be gone back and reviewed. It can be taught. It can be used for reproof. It can be used for correction. It can be used for training. So we've seen, as, as we have time and experience in the church, uh, you know, we, we see as we review Scripture that you know, God has spoken aloud. He's spoken to prophets. He's told others to do things. Um, but the reality is, if it wasn't written down, we wouldn't know it. We might think we know some stuff about what God did, but the only reason we know it is because it was written. 
And so we roll out right into this next idea of breathed out by God. And with, this, with these words, we can't overthink these words. Breathed out by God is really the focus that either through his actual words or unspoken words that were communicated to the writers of Scripture, all Scripture has its origin with God. That's it. God is the origin of all Scripture, all written word. He is the origin of Scripture. It's not going to be on your screen, but I'm going to flip quickly to 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there was one author of Scripture. One author and 40 different writers. One author, Scripture is breathed out by God. And so as we... uh, As we... uh, look at this, the other thing is we've got to kind of got to think about is this is a different day and age. And as we consider this day and age, and we're considering what he's talking about is all scripture in that moment, we've got to remember that in this moment, he's writing a letter. And so the scripture in that moment that he's referring to, <clears throat> presumably, is largely the Old Testament scripture, right? I don't know. Let's go look at it. And so we can go into a couple of different passages from the New Testament that talk about this. Let's flip to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. So this is Peter writing. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters and when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yeah, no kidding. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Did you catch that? As they do in other scriptures. Peter is recognizing even in that day that the letters of Paul fall under, fall under. Eric, I mean, just creating new words this morning like Eric sometimes does, fall under the heading of Scripture, the written word of God, breathed out by God. So that's an important concept to grasp that, that even in that, First century, near the time when Jesus walked the earth, that the New Testament scriptures were recognized as scripture. Um, a second passage that addresses that is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
verse 18. It's a really quick little verse, and you can kind of miss it. It says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. So it doesn't really have anything to do with this topic, but the point is that is a direct quote from the gospel of Luke. And if you missed it, the first introduction, the introduction to that verse was, for the scripture says. So in these moments, the gospels are being recognized as breathed out by God. Underneath that heading of all scripture is breathed out by God. And uh, one last one that I want to uh, share with you guys is John chapter 5, verse 39. And here we have in the Gospel of John, we have Jesus himself talking. And he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then we jump down to, to verse 45. Do you have, um, do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. <clears throat> But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So you're starting to see this, this intermingling of New Testament references to the Old Testament and a recognition that the Old Testament is clearly the scriptures, the breathed out by God's scriptures, but that the New Testament are not being, the New Testament is not disputing that fact. And if anything, it is highly recognizing it and affirming that. All right, so back to my initial uh, idea of the day of somebody handing me that book and saying, this should be the authority in your life. Based on what I've just told you and talked to you about for the last few minutes, there's a problem. Any, any astute I don't see Shelly here this morning. She's always my life group. Um, maybe she's in there. But anybody recognize a problem thus far? The only thing that we have shared thus far is that all the evidence this morning that we've shared is from the Bible. And so if I'm sitting here saying, I don't believe the Bible, throw that out the window. I just don't believe it. So what gives? And so the, the, the reality is, is that, honestly, it, it doesn't matter. As, as Jared reminded me on Wednesday night at Life Group, um, there is a, there's a, a great um, summary of this in the Westminster Confession, which was written in uh, 1600. And um, if I can find it here. And it describes... The authority of Scripture and where it comes from is this. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. 
the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Scripture testifies to itself adequately. God testifies to himself adequately. However, we do have the benefit of history. We do have the benefit of of other types of evidence. And while for sure, as we read Scripture, as we experience Scripture, like Barb was saying, we will become further convinced of what is already true. But there is benefit to looking at historical references, to looking at the reliability of Scripture to encourage us and in maybe even um, oftentimes helpful ways to encourage one who doesn't yet believe in Scripture. And so that's a couple of things I want to share in that context this morning. The first one is recognizing of how on earth do I know that the words in this book this morning are trustworthy compared to what was written initially. And so the the idea that I want to talk about just briefly, because again, we want to trust the Word of God because it is the truth of God's Word. However, there's some help in looking at the historical references. And so, the reality is, is that the New Testament was written approximately in the first century. So we'll say between 50 and 85 A.D., um, which... Uh, means um, Adonai Domini, which is the year of our Lord. It measures time from when Jesus was born. So anybody who says 2021, they're sort of implicitly recognizing that they believe in Jesus, by the way, but um, we can have that in another conversation. Um, the, the New Testament was written before 100, between 0 and 100, but that went really between 50 and 100 after Jesus died, but before that first century mark. So keep that as a mental road mark, uh, uh, bookmark in your mind. Okay, and so the Old Testament, on the other hand, is written, the, the older parts of it, so like the books, um, the first five books of the Bible, they were written probably in like 1500 B.C. So that's before Christ lived, 1500 years. So keep those two numbers in your mind as we work through some of these things. Because we're back to the question of can we trust what's in our hands this morning? And the short answer is absolutely yes. And here's why. Um, the the left-hand side here, we've got a manuscript called Codex Vaticanus. So this idea of manuscripts is, is that God's Word was only written with some sort of ink and pen once. That was its original copy, its original version, original draft. And that happened so long ago And it happened on pieces of material that decayed. We don't have any of those initial drafts. And so it becomes important to judge these copies. What we have is copies. And especially important to look at the ancient copies, the ones that are are centuries old. But we look at them and we judge them for accuracy, but we also judge them for how close they are to the original Manuscripts. So you look at accuracy by comparing them to other copies, but you also look at how close they are to the original script, the original written word. So on the left, we have Codex Vaticanus, and it is dated back to 400 AD. So that's, that's um, 300 years after that first century marker, right? So all scripture of the New Testament was completed by the first century. We have a complete 
book of the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually, in this Codex Vaticanus, which was dated back as a copy made 400 AD, so 300 years after that first uh, uh, bookmark we talked about. In terms of ancient writings, that's really good, by the way, and we'll get to more of that in a second. Also, what we have is this thing called the Papyrus 46. It's 86 pages of the New Testament. It includes the second half of Romans, Hebrews, Galatians, uh, through the first, second, uh, the first two chapters of Thessalonians. 87 pages, and that is compared without any... When you compare that and the later one, there is no differences. And so it's very accurate, and it moves back the manuscript by 200 years. So now instead of a manuscript that's accurate at 400 AD, we have one that's accurate at 200 AD. We're within 100 years of the original script. I mean, there's probably still grandkids, maybe kids, of the people that would have been able to see and review the original script that are still alive. When this manuscript was written, when this copy was made. And not only would they be alive to look at it, they would also be alive to dispute it and dispute the accuracy of the New Testament, which is hugely important as you look at the reliability of these texts. So that's, that's the New Testament on the top two there. The bottom graphic there shows the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Before 1947, the earliest copy of the, of the Old Testament was actually in that Codus Vaticanus. And it's named that because I think it's stored in the Museum of the Vatican, FYI. So not rocket science. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found as a part of an excavation. Actually, not even an excavation. It became an excavation, but there was a couple of, of wandering shepherd boys that roamed into a cave somewhere in the you know, Israel area, wandered in there, and found these containers, these jars. They pulled out, they started unrolling these scrolls, pages upon pages of, of writings the entire, there was parts of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. There were two copies of Isaiah. There was 13 copies of Deuteronomy. I mean, they, it was, there was all sorts of copies and it was, and here's the amazing part. It, after they went and looked at it and they did multiple types of dating, which I'm telling you guys, you can read about this stuff forever. The various approaches to the dating, they, they converge with different approaches so that they can be reasonably accurate on a date. But the bottom line is, we went from being confident in Old Testament manuscript and 400 AD and rewound that as far as 300 BC. 700 years more confident 300 to 700 years, because there's a window of, of accuracy that they judge. But amazing accuracy. The, the differences between what they found in 400 and what they found dated back to 300 BC, essentially non-existent, just the, the um, equivalent of a typo or a flip-flopped word. The accuracy of these manuscripts are remarkable. And in the green font in the bottom, you can't read it that well, but I note that there are tens of thousands as Matt was talking about, there's tens of thousands of manuscripts of Scripture. These ancient manuscripts, not, not just 
you know, some printing press copy that happened after the year 1500. We're talking about ancient, handwritten by the scribes, thousands upon thousands that have no errors to speak of. And when you compare that up to very respected pieces of literature like Homer and Caesar and Tacitus and some of those, I think the most that even exists is Homer with about 2,500 copies. And more usually, you've got a few copies that, and get this, that exist only within like a thousand years of their original writings. Remember, the New Testament, we're down to within a hundred years, one generation. And with the Old Testament, we're back to within about a thousand years, which we were at 2,000 years. But the accuracy is there. And so again, our focus is not these external features, but they are a little bit of help. And what I can't get over and can't help but note, and I summarized a, a paragraph that came from um, a systematic theology book as the author, Wayne Grudem, described like this, is that the preservation and correct assembly of the canon of scriptures, the books of the Bible, not to, should not be seen as subsequent to God's redemptive acts, but as part of it. As God was at work in creation, in calling of Israel, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Christ, in carrying out the apostles and the early church all the way to us, he was at work in the preservation and assembling together the books of Scripture for the benefit of the church age. To, to say that this is amazing doesn't even touch it. We ought not consider it just a sidelight. It is a part. God desired us to read and study his word, and he made a way of it. We can view it as an authority, as the final authority in our life. Another thing that, that, that going back to my initial handing of the Bible to me and, me and being told I ought to consider it my authority, that I might notice is that, and, and I, you may, may or may not have noticed this already, but generally speaking, the writing of the scriptures are focused around the redemptive acts of God. So think about it. You've got creation and the fall. You've got sin overwhelming the world, the flood. You've got the calling of Abraham, the promised Abraham of a, of a new nation, a new people. You've got the rising up of, no, of Moses to restore and to, to rescue the nation of Israel. You've got the setting up of a monarchy. And then you've got the prophecy and the anticipation of a savior. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. And he lives a perfect life. He dies. And he rises again. Scripture captures that. It's like Greg was talking about before. The thread that runs through from Genesis to the end. And so the reality is, is that 
These things really happened. They really happened. The words that are written here, they really happened. And so I can't help but share this morning just a couple of items of archaeological finds that demonstrate that some of these things actually happened. And so I'm going to go through them real quickly. We're not going to linger long. But there's two aspects I'm going to show you. And one of them is the Exodus, all right? Moses rescuing the nation of Israel from Egypt. And so just quickly, there's this guy named Herzog who's an ancient skeptic. And this is what he said. The Israelites were never in Egypt. They did not wander in the desert. They did not conquer the land in a military campaign and did not pass it on to the 12 tribes of Israel. The many Egyptian documents that we have make no mention of the Israelites' presence in Egypt and are also silent about the events of the Exodus. All right, so that's a skeptic. So if you start with his summation, those next four bullets describe what one would have to do to refute that, if you, if you could, via archaeological finds or something else. And that is that if you could demonstrate Israelites in Egypt at all, you know, checkbox number one, if you could show that there's evidence of Israelite slaves in Egypt before 1446 BC, that's check mark number two, because you're kind of running through his assertion. If you can show that Israelites are in Canaan after 1400 BC, demonstrating the Exodus had occurred, you can show that. And then just for good measure, if you could actually show that there were Yahweh worshipers wandering on the way, you'd have that fourfold demonstration. All right, so we're going to show you a couple of these things, which I, I haven't found any of them, and it sounds like it easy, but you know, these, these are incredibly complex digs. So there's one thing I wanted to show you, and so if someone in our neighborhood was to build, an, an Amish family moved into our neighborhood and built an Amish house, what are some of the things we would expect to see? What's that? No electricity. What else? What's that? Buggies, hitching posts, maybe big windows, uh, clotheslines. Why do we know that? Because we've all been to Amish country. We know what, what our friends that are Amish, how they live and some of the attributes of their homes. And so the very similar things going on in ancient Egypt with Jewish homes. So fast forward, first of all, to 1200 BC when Israelites are, are living all over Canaan. They live in a very specific style of home. All right. Now rewind 700 years before there was slavery in Egypt, any of that. And not too long ago, there was an archaeological find of a Hebrew home in Egypt dated back to the time when Jacob would, well, Joseph would have brought Jacob and his brothers and their whole tribe into Egypt. So when Joseph was still in charge, before there was even a glimmer of slavery on the horizon, there has been a Hebrew home excavated and found in Egypt. Bullet number one, check. Uh, next slide, please. 
The next two slides are really impactful because the first one shows um, a depiction of Jewish or Semite traders entering Egypt around that same time frame as that home was found. And then perhaps even more compelling is a scene from this guy named Reckmeyer, his tomb, sorry, he couldn't be around to have seen it himself, um, showing that there were foreign slaves that were making brick. And this Reckmeyer guy, he died in around that 1415. BC category. This was a recognition of foreign slaves with that scene showing in his tomb. Check. Go ahead and go next. And lastly, there were mentions in this Meripoth steel of an attack in Canaan where Israel is already the settled country. They've been there for a while. They just didn't show up demonstrating that they're now in Canaan. They're amongst the tribes that are settled and prevalent. Making the reality is that they've been there a while. The exodus happened, and they've made this transition from Egypt into Canaan. And lastly, super duper cool that Amenhotep III in his uh, tomb, or it's a, 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 some sort of a, a temple or a tomb, there are multiple inscriptions like you're seeing here that are ingrained with the words, the land of the Shashu nomads of Yahweh. All over Egypt, there's these particular inscriptions that recognize the nomads of Yahweh, worshipers of Yahweh, that are nomads. Sound plausible? Sounds familiar? Now, this is hardly a full overview of the archaeology of the Holy Land. But I would encourage you, be encouraged by this sort of information, but go seek it out yourself and, and study it up and become, become knowledgeable. And so, the reality is with all of this, so what? Right? It's, it's compelling. It's nice. It's certainly inter interesting. I'm, I, I, I love reading about this stuff. It's compelling. But, but in the context of the authenticity of Scripture, so what? The more that we become convinced, the more that we recognize as we read Scripture, as we as we put it into our hearts and minds, as we use it, you know, go back to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where, where Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. When we believe, when we recognize that the word of God has authority in our lives, it points out sin. Just like in the first part of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Sin is coming. Sin is here. Sin is a part of our lives. But what did Paul say to Timothy? Keep on. Keep on doing what you've been doing. You've learned the sacred scriptures. He says, you've been trained and are prepared. And then, as he closes up that passage, 
all scripture is breathed out by God. Use it. And of course, back in the days when this was originally written, again, there were no chapter and verse pauses. And he goes from right in chapter 3, which wasn't a chapter 3 then, right into the next sentence in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And it's so cool that the topic of today is the authority of Scripture. Because here's what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Is that a a depiction of authority or what? Paul is, is playing everything off and saying, I'm charging you, but I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. And he says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reproof, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The so what, folks, is the gospel. It's the gospel. Sin is here. Sin is coming. We need to be ready. We've got the sacred scriptures. We've got them. We've even got the historical evidence that we can go look at. But we've got the scriptures. We are trained And we can be readied. But the reality is, is that we need to keep clinging to the truth. We need to recognize the authority of God's word that he breathed it out to us. And that we can grasp onto it. Be trained by it. What does training require? Repetition. Repetition and training in God's word will give us an ability and a confidence to in moments teach, in moments reproof, in moments correct. But always with patience and always with teaching. Then I want to jump down to verse 5 of chapter 4. And Peter, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul levels again. You can just envision, you know, if they were together, he was writing this letter. I sort of, I, I sort of envision the Zoom call somehow. But, but if you can in a letter, Paul levels with Peter, Peter, levels with Timothy. And you've got to imagine your mind eye, mind's eye that, that Paul looks him right in the eye and he says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And folks, if we can all sit on the receiving end of that this morning, of of the Apostle Paul encouraging us along, recognizing that these these sacred scripture, like what Paul encouraged Timothy with, they are able to show us the salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And as Paul encouraged Timothy with, do the work of an evangelist. Don't keep it to ourselves. It's true. God and the Bible testify to it. We've even got archaeological and scripture transforal evidence for it. The evidence is on our side. We need to do the work of an evangelist. Share the information. The Bible is true. It is the authority, the final authority to how we live. Dear Lord, we're just grateful this morning. We're grateful to have your word. We are in awe of your attention of us having it. The way that you brought it to us through the generations, we are absolutely in awe of it. And we, we allow that to bring worship to you this morning. So without it, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know any of it. So God, this morning, let our minds absorb this information, but let our hearts not get puffed up because of it. Let us be challenged to take it, to take this God-breathed knowledge and wisdom and be pushed out through us that we would do the work of an evangelist and that we would fulfill our ministry as an individual and as our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.